welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I am your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I'm lucky enough to be chatting with writer, actor and comedian. It's Neil Malarkey. So, hey, Neil, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you very much. You're a lovely host um, from what I hear. So I'm excited to be subject to your <laughs> hostess. <laughs> Oh, it's nice when you hear that people have listened to past podcasts. And well, know. I thought just in case you you're a weirdo, uh, but you you are a bit weird because you have an encyclopedic knowledge of comedy. It would appear to me far too much. Listen to far too much comedy. Well, this is the, this is the thing. It's a bit of a, a labour of love, really. It's me talking to my comedy heroes. Do you know what I mean? So it's people that I've whose work I've loved over the years, and you know, and you're you're on my list, Neil. So thanks so much. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm happy to talk to you. Let's see. Uh, let's see how it goes. Let's see how it goes, indeed. So I usually like to start off by talking a bit about childhood, uh, something we don't normally know too much about, you know, comedians and actors and all that kind of stuff. So what were you like as a kid? I'm, I'm guessing you maybe a little bit outgoing, outgoing or quiet. Well, it's interesting. And to name drop immediately, um, I'm the, the third of three brothers, as is Mike Myers. And in his family and my family, the older, the oldest son was the funny one. <laughs> um, and so I suppose he, Mike and I would see him getting a laugh and thought we kind of mentally file it because I was fairly quiet, very well behaved. Um, no indication of what I might become, I suppose, until later. Uh, did the right thing, did well at school. Yeah. Never got any, you know, cross marks on my report until the fifth form, which is when I took O-levels. People might know this as GCSEs. Yes. Um, when I was, I realized, I had realized, I suppose, from about 13, 12 even, that comedy, making people laugh, gives you power and it's fun. And it's the currency of conversation. Mm. Um, I don't know. Uh, I watch a lot of people on the street and on the train and men in groups laugh a lot. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of, a catalyst, they just go, <laughs> big, big laughs. And it seems to me they're kind of rekindling old conversations. Women laugh as well, but it seems to be less sort of cyclical. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, anyway, I realized that my friends and I liked to laugh. I watched Monty Python. I liked that. I could see that if you make people laugh, you get attention. Uh, they won't beat you up. Not that anybody was being beaten up at my uh, grammar school in Surrey. Uh, particularly, they were beaten up by people at the other schools because we had bright red blazers. Um, so uh, this was, I suppose, what I wanted to sort of be aware of. And I chose my A-levels, physics, chemistry, maths, with a view to being a doctor. Um, but then I was in the school play in the lower sixth and that my head was turned. I thought, that's what I want to do. I could make people laugh. And with timing... And an eyebrow. I'm doing that now, listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, you could get attention. You could get a laugh. And it's very addictive. It's funny how people, civilians, don't think being in comedy is, is much fun because you get all that tension. And what if they don't laugh? Kind of the one laugh will, like golf, one good shot will keep you going for 10 bad <laughs> events. Uh, so that's what I decided. And then I heard about the Cambridge Footlights, uh, who do comedy. So you go and go to Cambridge. You get a degree. Don't tell your parents yet you want to do comedy. And it was only on the got on the Footlights committee that I said, my dad actually said to me, do you want to do this? I said, yeah, I do. And of course, that was terrifying for my parents. Not a proper job. Um, 
But as a child, I wasn't particularly funny. I wasn't particularly outgoing. I wouldn't say I was odd. I wouldn't say that I was uh, particularly ingoing, outgoing, whatever. I had friends. I could make people laugh fairly early on. People looked to me uh, sometimes. I thought, well, why were they looking to me? And years later, a kinesiologist said, you've got the sort of face that people listen to. <laughs> it was the shape of your face. Because there are times when I don't want to be a centre of attention. I want to just go about my business. And then you kind of people, what do you think, Neil? I, I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion. Anyway, that was by the by. So I, I certainly enjoyed attention, uh, but it was only kind of um, formalised when I was in the school play and I had a comedy part. Uh, I started up staging people with a soda siphon. <laughs> and one night went horribly wrong. So my fake moustache, which was supposed to come off much later, Tom Stoppard, the real inspector hound, started dripping so my whole character was being given away because i was too busy it was terrible behavior <laughs> i was supposed to do a bit of soda siphon acting while real acting was going on the other side of the stage but i completely upstaged everyone and in the play was saskia reeves who people oh. may know so she's in slow horses and, and many other things you know wonderfully accomplished actor but she, we borrowed girls from the local girls school uh so yes i was upstaging her and others horribly with my soda siphon <laughs> I mean, you went to a boys was it you went to a boys school initially so i mean that must have been quite difficult I, I suppose you hear all these stories about you know having to not having that interaction with girls well that kind of formative age i didn't know any different um yeah in hindsight i would love to have sisters but generally um you know boys at boys schools tend to be terrified of girls and that comes out in good way <laughs> Not so good ways, but there were different creatures. But by the fifth, sixth form, we were going to parties. Boys had girlfriends. Uh, they come in for the school play. So it wasn't it wasn't too difficult. So by the time I got to university, I I kind of understood them a little bit better. I yet uh, wouldn't say that I do. I don't understand myself, frankly. Um, but it's kind of yes. In hindsight, I wish I had more interaction with with understanding women. Um, but by the sixth form, I was. Um, and I'm going to tell you, Paula, I was generally the boy that the girls cried on the shoulder of. Oh. My, my friends kind of were horrible. I was too scared to ask anyone to dance. So this may yeah. be what you were getting at before. I'd be the friend of the boy who did have a girlfriend. Um, and then he'd do something bad, which boys tend to do. And I'd be the one to take them home and say, it's all right. <laughs> that, that tended to be my role. Dark horse. Um, yes, dark horse. <laughs> um, but uh, so, yeah, I, in hindsight, yes, it would have been good to have women around. But I had a mother. Yes. Um, and so I was lucky. Mm -hmm. um, my father didn't. His, his died when he was 11. Yeah. Um, and so that was very sad. And so um, I was the other day asked by another podcast, but going deeper than perhaps you will, you know, what was your childhood trauma? And I, I, I couldn't claim to have had any. My goodness. <laughs> other than I think my dad was sad that he didn't have interaction with his mum after yeah. the age of 11 yeah. um and i always feel very sad when i hear about children who've lost a parent hmm. so i mean where did the doctor thing come from what did your parents do uh, my dad was a a businessman but he had a chemical he did chemical engineering that mm -hmm. so he would go and do startup refinery so he'd go behind the iron curtain oh, which wow. is quite unusual in in the 70s to go to refineries in Poland, Russia. So he would tell us what it was like. There were, you go to the shop and there was nothing in the shop. Um, and there'd be somebody at the corridor making sure you gave back the plug from the bath. 
Um, and, may, and who knows whether they were listening in or not. So he had a, he would travel and occasionally bring back stuff from Japan. He brought back as a kimono each, which was a prized <laughs> possession. There's a picture of me looking about when I was about 14, looking very female, dare I say, uh, in a coat kimono. Cause my mother always told me, and I'm, my wife says, this is affect you deeply, but, um, I was supposed to be a girl having yes. had two boys. I was supposed to be a girl and I've done my best. Um, <laughs> So when I moved in with my now wife, she looked around and said, where's your toolbox? So I said, I, I don't conform to any kind of male, um, you know, uh, stereotypes. Yeah. Um, so I let her do all the DIY. I do the recycling and the rubbish and quite a lot of cooking. Sunday roast is my thing. Uh, so my mother was a teacher. Um, and of course, in when she was growing up, Women and education were not given the, the, you know, that wasn't really, wasn't encouraged. I mean, her friend did go and do a degree mm. at Leeds University, but my grandfather said, I can't afford for you to go to university for three years. One of the teachers, she was going to go to the local teacher training school in Cheshire near Crewe. And one of the teachers said, you know, there's a, there's a teacher training college at Cambridge called Homerton. Why don't you try for that? And I think she went for an interview in Liverpool. Um, and she got there and she had no idea this existed. And uh, went to do a dance on the first weekend. And that's when my father was studying chemistry. And that's how they met. And they were inseparable wow. ever since. Um, so she was a primary school maths teacher. So I have a real passion that people shouldn't be scared of maths. Mm. And uh, occasionally I'll come across people who say, your mum taught me maths. I found there was an internet entrepreneur came up to me once at the comedy store and said, she came up to me and said, you're a bright boy, but you're not, you're struggling with the maths. And she gave me extra kind of lessons and he became an internet entrepreneur and so that's the kind of thing of which I'm very proud yeah um, my mother-in-law was also a, a teacher and, and there were there are so many you know intelligent women of that era that education was the was their thing and that's how their the sort of career process uh unraveled for them um but I'm incredibly proud of what they have done uh, yeah. because you know teachers are such a a mainstay of our society yeah. But anyway, so me being a comedian was a bit of a left field choice, especially because my older brother uh, was an accountant. My second brother did chemical engineering. And then I said, I want to be a comedian. And so my mum was terrified. Um, I heard her once um, on the phone. Oh, yes, Neil. Yes, Neil. Yes, he's, <laughs> trying, he's trying to break into show business. And uh, she's, we didn't know what you had to do. She said, so what are you going to do? You're going to look at the stage, which is the sort of showbiz newspaper, and, and apply for jobs. And I said, oh, no, no, no. It's uh, To be a writer before me, you have to make your own way. Go to Edinburgh and get noticed by Radio 4 and stuff like that. And that's kind of what I did. I was lucky with the Footlights, you get uh, a gilded beginning, or you did in my day. It's, as Tony Harzer said in your um, podcast, he said when he was doing Cliffhanger in uh, the 80s, there were only about five stand-up comedians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now, you know, there were, I remember Mike Myers looking at the shows that might be eligible. When I, I did a double act with him, people may not know, but I'll talk about it in a minute. And he said, how many shows are there eligible for the Perrier? And we counted about 15. And now there's 1,500. Uh, so we were lucky. We played big venues, sold out because John Cleese, because mm -hmm. Footlights was Monty Python, was yeah. um, Smith & Jones. People knew it from Radio 4 producers and so forth. John Lloyd, Julie Covington, Emma Thompson. Mm. People come see our show. 
Um, and then we were lucky by the same sort of power of the name, the brand, to go to Australia, which was wonderful. When you're just out of university, tour Australia and do our show and people yeah. in, enjoyed it there. They laughed at our British accents, uh, you know, because we <laughs> were British. Um, so we did uh, Sydney, Canberra, Wollongong, Wittagong, Darwin, Tasmania, Gladstone, Rockhampton, just going to the Tropic of Capricorn, just yeah. amazing things, and then came back and um, then had to get our equity card. So you had to prove that you'd been paid £28 <laughs> on at least seven occasions, which we managed to do. Um, and then we did... Uh, we always writers say write what you know. So we wrote a play uh, that was about signing on because you could sign on. That's what we did. That's how we earned. Uh, so got any money because coming back from Australia, we had no source of income. Mm. And in those days, you could get what was called um, now called income support, I suppose, but um, uh, the dull uh, supplementary benefit. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, and and you could get your rent paid as well if you showed you had. So this was quite fantastic compared mm. with. The delays people face now, yeah. uh, but we—that's what we knew. So we sh- we wrote a play called "Feeling the Benefit." Um, so David Tyler, who's a very accomplished radio producer, Moena Banks, whom you know from Absolutely Pepe Pig, and now incredible TV writer, Robert Harley from Green Wing, um, Chris England, who co-wrote *An Evening with Gary Lineker*, and Paul Simpkin, who yeah, used to work yeah. on *Spitting Image*. So you know, I was very lucky to be with this cohort of people. Um, we taught Australia, came back, did *Feeling the Benefit*. Uh, which we thought was a brilliant farce. Uh, Dario Fo, do you know Dario Fo, Accidental oh, Death of an Anarchist? So when we were growing up, this play, Accidental Death of an Anarchist, ran and ran in the West End. And I went to see it and it was a kind of biting satire on the Italian police and their collusion with the fascists and so forth. Uh, but it was hilarious theatrically. And Dario Fo uh, was this icon, I suppose, Italian playwright, activist. Um, so we... We uh, tried to think of that, but it didn't really quite reach those heights. However, we ended up playing this at the Gate Theatre in Notting Hill. Uh, So we do that as the main show. And for some years, we'd had a title of a sketch show without the material. Uh, David Tyler, I think, came up with it. And it was called Get Your Coat, Dear, We're Leaving, which was (laughs) sort of, people, you know, thud, thud. This is outrageous. Uh, So we thought, what a great title. So we did that. And there was a guy selling tickets for us. And he was sitting in a wheelchair, not because he's a wheelchair user, but because we'd used all the chairs on stage for our set. So there were no, it's a pub theater. It's not as grand as the gate theater is now. The dressing room was the office, which was just full of paint and ladders. Um, And there was Mike Myers sitting in a wheelchair uh, in a hat and scarf because it was cold. He'd dropped by the theater by chance the gods of comedy helped this, I suppose. He was living not far in Labrador Grove, walked past the theatre and it said Cambridge Footlights. Now, he'd heard of that because of Monty Python and so yeah, many others. Yeah. And so knocked on the door and they didn't know who the hell he was and said, oh, yeah, all right, if you, if you want, you can paint the set. Uh, so he painted our set and was selling tickets for us. And the tickets were just little raffle tickets. Wow. So I got talking to him and he's funny. You might have noticed this. He's a funny man. And I said, well, what are you doing? What's going on? He said, well, I've moved over here. I've got a British passport because his parents are British. And, I, and I'm writing sketches. And I said, sketches? No way. Sketches are so last century. <laughs> last decade. Uh, stand-up is where alternative comedy. So I said, I'll take you. So I took him to Jongleurs and we saw some brilliant acts. Oh, my God. Um, 
I think we saw Lee Corns, who used to be in the Wow Show, and various other uh, people, and both of us were kind of excited. This this is what I had dreamed of doing. Mm. So in the Footlights program, two years before, the biogs we wrote were fairly silly, and I mine was just Neil wants to be a really radical alternative comedian, but his mum says he should get a proper job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in hindsight, it was, you know, very true. <laughs> um, and my mum was worried. And just by digression, the comedy store players, of which I'm still part, have been going now for nearly 38 years. Yeah. But that's not bad for a... a not a bad a, run, is it? You know? Not a bad run. Whereas my brothers, with their proper job as accountant, chemical engineer, <laughs> haven't lasted in the job, you know, that long. They've ducked and dived. Anyway, so Mike Myers, uh, take, we take him jongleurs. We, he just made me laugh in the street. You know that thing he did in was it in Austin Powers <laughs> or Waynesworth, where he goes down some stairs the oh, other side of a sofa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did that to me in the street. And I said, "That's hilarious. Let's do a sketch based on that idea." <laughs> so we had a sofa, uh-huh. and that was going to be our set. So we just do lots of things behind the sofa now. I'm, you won't be able to see this, viewers, but I'm going to do things like this. Dun, 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 dun. Can you see? We said we had a fish slice spatula. That was the, <laughs> so we basically wrote about 20 gags and created a story around them based on the fact that the top half of you is seen, but the bottom half isn't. Yeah, so yeah. At one point, I put my head back and my feet up, which I'll do for you now, Paul, because I'm committed to theatre. Uh, if I put my feet up like that, <laughs> except you can't see my knees, I, I can almost do it. <laughs> Looks like I'm in the bath, okay? So you see my head and you see my feet. So we just and basically had one sofa in his bed sit in North Kensington, which is not grand. It's, it's a posh name for sort of the, 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 the badlands between Kensal Green and Labrador yeah, Grove. Yeah. Um, anyway, and he used to have to put 50p in the meter to get hot water, electricity. So one end of the room is a sofa. The other end is a couple of chairs with a blanket over. And we just spent ages just trying to find some gags that work with this. Uh, and a, and there was, uh, uh, <laughs> I'll do it now for you. There was a character <laughs> who was, who sort of walked along like this on his chin. Uh, <laughs> um, and oh yes, I was played somebody at the checkup. By the way, it's on YouTube listeners, uh, from Edinburgh in 1986. You can see a truncated version of this. Um, so that's what we did. And this sketch, which is called Dr. Wicked wasn't ready. I booked an open spot at the George the Fourth Open Heart Cabaret um, in Chiswick. Um, so we had five minutes. We arrived, and we didn't have five minutes material, but we did have sort of two minutes, which the joke was, we go, da 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 uh, Paula, will you be subject to copyright issues? I'm singing tequila, da 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 tequila. And our joke was, we say tequila a few times, and then we say other words, beginning with T, and then eventually just hold open these jackets that I'd bought from a charity shop two years before, these kind of dinner jackets. One was blue, one was green. I thought, oh, they could be fun for something. <laughs> and then we just opened up, and there was a bit of paper saying tequila, and we say Tony Gubber or whatever. <laughs> Tony Gubber was a sports presenter in the 80s. So we thought that was quite funny. That was in our set for a couple of months. And then soon went, Dr. Wicked took it over and we started doing longer things. So our open spot, we managed to uh, do two minutes and then Mike said, let's improvise. So he did. He was funny. And I was, my head was, oh, I've never done this before. Arg. I nearly fell over with the panic. Um, but we got uh, a spot later and then we turned up 
whatever it was, four weeks later, that was a fairly quick turnaround. And there was these three very handsome men who were uh, doing, who were the headliners. And they even had flyers, flyers in 1985. And they even had a rather beautiful girlfriend of one of them uh, who was putting flyers on the chair. Now I can reveal, they were called the Jockeys of Norfolk, featuring Hugh Grant. Andy Taylor, who's a highly successful actor, and Chris Lang, highly successful writer-producer now, yeah. Unforgotten. And the beautiful girlfriend was Beatty Edney, the actress people might know from Poldark and many other, <laughs> many other triumphant performances he's given. Anyway, so we were slightly concerned, these handsome and successful people. But um, that was kind of our first gig. And then gradually we got a few more gigs, five minutes leads to 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, and then we went to the Edinburgh Festival in 85. And, um, by the way, I've realized you haven't asked me a question, but I'll just keep going anyway. Good, keep going. I, I've noticed you do that with people. That's, <laughs> you can always cut it in the We were nobody. So I really struggled to find a venue and then would at some point got hold of somebody who said they might come and see us at the Finborough, which is a tiny theater in London. They didn't come. Um, they're lost. They let us have it anyway, a McNally's. So we would do, there's a cabaret evening, and we'd do 20 minutes um, and then go and do somewhere else that I'd managed, Theatre West End, which was yeah, in Prince. Yeah. So um, McNally's, during the daytime, there was three stand-ups called the Sunshine Players, and the show was called Three Weeks to Live. Paul Merton, Kit Hollaback, and Dave Cohen. Um, and Kit had done improv with... Robin Williams and others, papaya mm-hmm. juice in San Francisco. Yeah. And she knew Mike had done it. And so kind of let's try and do an improv thing. And so we one afternoon we did, and Mike and Kit taught us some of the games. So we thought, oh, okay, we'll do it. So uh, she'd managed to get us a slot, Kit, at 1 a.m. at the Southside Community Center, uh, which, by the way, Mike and I had auditioned to do our full show there. And I think we got turned down. The audition, by the way, was we turned up at this very posh flat in Knightsbridge, and had to re they just had a dinner party. So they were kind of, you know, at the end of a dinner party mood. Yeah, yeah. We said, can we borrow your sofa? So we did our sketch behind the sofa and they were all quite posh, including this woman called Francesca Gonshaw, who it turns out was in Allo Allo. And in real, <laughs> you talk very posh English. And then in Allo Allo, she was comedy, you know, French or Belgian, whatever it was. Anyway, I thought we, we didn't get that gig, I think, but Southside Community Centre, 1 a.m., here we go. Uh, the five of us. Of course, there's only about seven people in the audience. Um, by the end, there's three. <laughs> and of the five performers, only Mike and me are there. The others have run away. Oh, my um, God. They'd abandoned you. They'd abandoned us, yes. <laughs> differently. But uh, I may have misremembered. Well, I think we got paid, you know, a dose of it, £1.52 or something oh like that. Oh, my God. But then Kit spoke to the comedy store um, and persuaded them that, they should do this on a Sunday night. Wow. They, do, they did stand up on Fridays and Saturdays and other nights they sublet to discos. So mm-hmm. uh, Don Ward and Kim Kinney of the comedy store were persuaded. So we did lots of workshops where Kit and Mike would teach us. Other performers could drop in on a Wednesday, try and learn the skills, the games. Kit ran a workshop for anybody on a Saturday afternoon. So actors and, and non-actors and all sorts of people dropped in. And she was a great teacher. Mm. And we learned from her. And the Comedy Store players started uh, October 27th, 1985. Wow. Now, of course, nobody knew about Impro, as it was called here. Improv, as we now call it. 
Americans call it. Um, you get on stage without a script. <laughs> you make stuff up. What nonsense. <laughs> what are you talking about? So we had to sort of hide. We were in the second half. The first half was stand-ups. So Paul and Kit and Dave might do their stand-ups. Sometimes we did uh, our act. And then we were on in the second half. And then it's got a Don Ward will say that it kind of didn't take off until we decided January 30th, 1986, to say we're the whole show. We'll call it the Comedy Store Players. We'll call it Comedy To Go, like yeah. takeaway comedy. And we'll do the whole show and sell it that way. And, you know, gradually people got to hear about it. Um, by some bylaw, the city of Westminster made us charge five pounds, which was so much money. It was a lot in those yeah. days, yeah. In those days, because also there was hardly any comedy around. Jongleurs yeah. and, the, and our um, uh, student gigs and also the, um, what's it called? I've forgotten it now, the Earth... The Earth Exchange, vegetarian cafe uh, in Highgate, where you might get paid or you might get a free um, snack. <laughs> I remember we did it once, and I'll have, the, I'll have that chocolate roll. I bite into it. It's not chocolate, it's carob, which oh, is so disappointing. Anyway, I never charge one pound to get in, whatever. So we would do things like you become a member, get two for the price of one, yeah. best suggestion, come in, you know, two pounds fifty, whatever. We're desperate to try and get people in. And slowly, slowly, over the coming years, we got an audience. Yeah. Um, but uh, during that time, Mike went back, 86, to Toronto. Um, and he'd always been passed over for promotion to the Second City main company in Toronto. He'd done the touring company. And they said, come back. And so he did. He, he returned for Edinburgh, 86, which was when we really did get noticed. Just he was, as we he was never heard from again. <laughs> Never heard of him again. <laughs> we, I went over in December 86 and did it, my show with him. And then over again in 1990, we called it a show, Mike Myers in a show with his friend Neil Malarkey from London, <laughs> by which he was on Saturday Night Live. He oh, did it with Wayne's World. Wayne was huge, the way yeah, his merchandise. Yeah. Um, so gradually, and then Whose Line Is It Anyway happened in the late 80s yeah. on the radio and on TV. And that really helped the comedy store players because people understood what it was. And they saw Josie Lawrence and they saw Paul Merton and they saw Richard Ranch and some of us as well were on it less. Jim Sweeney were on. Tony lots. Slattery as well. Slattery, yeah. And so Slattery would come and guess with us. We even got some time. Uh, we got Dan Patterson, the producer of Who's yeah. Line and of Mock the Week to come down and guess with us because he created this having done Impro and seen Impro when he was in Chicago, which is right. the home of, of Improv. And he, he was doing a master's there, I think. So he came back with this idea and persuaded Radio 4 to do it and then Channel 4. And then for some reason it was, um, Paul was translating. We have a game where somebody does gibberish as if they're a foreigner and Paul Merton was translating Dan. And then Paul was very cheeky. He said, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, translated what the kids, and now let me take my trousers off. <laughs> and Dan did. So he took, you know, you could see this produce, this top producer's pants. Uh, <laughs> That showed commitment. You know, improv is all about yes to the suggestion. Go with it. Be be prepared for vulnerability. Risk. Take failure on the nose. Because then if you embrace it, it becomes success. Uh, so that That's was... Improv, uh, that isn't it? Was, I suppose that it's, at its core. But as you... if Yeah, when people watch improv, they say, well, do, aren't you ever stuck for something? And you say, well, that's when you really do come alive. The, mm. When you're stuck on the edge of your certainty something joyous happens and having done it for a long time you'll be rescued by the process you'll be rescued by your fellow fellow player that's the the highly addictive even more addictive than just written comedy is you don't even have to write it do you think anybody can do improv or is it a, is it a skill that you have to learn is it kind of i'm assuming it's not a natural it's not a natural thing for people 
Um, well, what is natural? Hmm. Yeah. We're, I'm still, we're born with the fear of bright lights and falling over, apparently. Yeah. Um, but everything else tends to be learned. Um, now, there's a couple of things. I spend my life teaching people improv. Mm. So I know anybody can do it. Yeah. But you said our, some people have developed it. You're right. Okay. Um, and I learned by Mike talking about it. Yeah. Where he, when, when something strange happened, he wouldn't say that's strange. He'd say, oh, I wish that would happen again sort of thing. Or things like um, that's the second most bizarre thing to happen to me, which is great because what's the most bizarre um, and, and and basically, you know, if somebody comes the other day, my daughter, and this is they're getting it by osmosis. I came up with a big bag with long handles and she said, isn't there one with longer handles? <laughs> Which is that's all improv is, is take a thing and then exaggerate, add yeah. to it. Yeah. If you like. So people may have got that through their family environment um, because that's the nature of the banter uh, in the organization, uh, whether it be family friends where they are at college at school whatever um so yes but i teach it and basically once people get over the hump of it's okay not to know in fact the not knowing liberates you and you can't judge improv by the standards of written comedy Mm. written comedy is beautiful joyous and finely honed and it needs to be delivered in the right rhythm and you need to find the right word the right cadence it's music and it may well need road testing. Yeah. And then when it's right, it's just right. Now, of course, Billy Connolly upends all these rules, by the way. <laughs> in terms of he just talks and he yeah. naturally creates the rhythms and stuff like that. But, but mere mortals would have to find that rhythm. They may have to write that rhythm. Uh, improv is all about, are they going to be able to say anything at all? Mm. <laughs> so if you wrote it down and re, uh, redid it, it would feel clumsy. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, Second City, which I've mentioned, which is the home of improv, uh, which I'd heard of because Mike had been at Second City, which I probably glossed over before. I, d- I knew they did sketches and people went from Second City to Saturday Night Live, but I didn't know they'd imp- improv. And they sometimes do improv, which they kind of try to character. So they are in the creating process, the laboratory, the prototype of what may become written, but then they collate it to become a written sketch. What we do is thrown away after uh, mm. Sunday night, 9.30, we go home, we forget about it. Literally, we do. The audience might say, well, you know that sketch in the laundrette? <laughs> and I, I've got no idea what you're talking go about. On. Because, because I'm in flash, not hard drive. Yeah. I'm in a, in flow, in, in, a, in, zone, in, in a zone. Um, but anybody can do it. Now, of course, people say I need to be an extrovert. No, no, it's, it's actually not about that. And when I do corporate workshops, which is most of what I do now, Teaching people the skills of improv, listening, working with difference, embracing somebody else's idea, going with somebody on the journey to discover something new, taking justified risks with somebody, yeah. acknowledging their contribution, all the stuff that is easily applicable from the improv stage to real life. Yeah. People will say, oh, don't pick on her, pick on him or her um, because he's an extrovert. Yeah. And I go, actually... Let me pick on who I like. Because in, in a group of 50 or 100 or 500, I only choose one or two people, three, four, five maybe. And I, I, I don't really want to be told who to pick because what I want is the audience to know yeah. that I've made my decision based on the brief discussion we've had. So I tend to say, who's seen improv? Okay, let's do a little exercise. How did it work? And then gradually, gradually get to know them. 
And generally people say, oh, you pick the right people. Mm. And I say, well, you know, the gods of improv have helped me do that. But it tends to be I pick people who look like they're comfortable in their skin. Yeah. They won't punch me. But I um the, the so-called extrovert. I don't want the joke teller. Yeah. Although sometimes it's useful to have that. And it's mostly a him come up and they're trying hard to win. And they're not they're not listening. They're trying to get a gag. Yeah. And it's useful only in that's not how to do it. Mm. Whereas the quieter person, the introvert who does listen and follows the simple rule of yes and, hmm, I'll take those, uh, the long handles on that bag and I'll make them a joke of why aren't they longer sort yeah. of thing. Um, and so uh, it's nothing to do introversion, extroversion. Sometimes extroversion uh, taken to the wrong dimension is somebody who talks too much. Say, so look at me. And improv is almost the opposite. Although we are on stage, the, the surprising things that people find are the mindset we have, which is make the other person look good. Mm. Follow the follower. Yeah. So if I can tee you up, if I can sense you've got some idea, if I can run with you and build it up with you, that's great. And there are some, and we we would talk about being a scene builder and the best improvisers can be a scene builder or they can knock it into the back of the net. And I can tell within about 10 seconds, if somebody is a good listener, we talk about a generous performer, they're looking at me, they've taken what I said and have just added a tiny thing back and lobbed it back to me so we can riff together. Yeah. yeah. Anybody can do it. Yeah. Some people may have had a head start in terms of the environment they've come from. Yeah. I, I don't think, I don't personally think I could do it, but <laughs> who knows? Who Paula, knows? Who knows? You, you challenge me now. Maybe one day. <laughs> well, no, today's the day. Oh, my God. We're going to just tell a story one word at a time, okay? Now, uh, we could just think of an object. Give us, give me an object, Paula. I don't know. Uh, I tell okay. you what, over your left shoulder, there's a picture of a head. Uh, and what's that? Yeah, what's that? It's Bob Mortimer. <laughs> oh yes, Bob Mortimer. And and what? How is Bob constructed? Uh, lots, not... of, lots of words. Words. Okay, so that's beautiful. Let, let's just take uh, the fishing rod. Right. Okay. So we just say fishing is our kind of pretext. So we do one word at a time, Paula. You know you can cut this. Okay. Um, but if it goes well, I've won. I've proven. Okay. Even you can do this because you're a very good listener, Paula. Okay. So this fishing, you know, so we call it yesterday I went fishing. Here we go then. Yesterday I went out to the river to fish for fish. And I saw a big man. And he was wearing some Onion. <laughs> Rings. Good. We, we, it doesn't have to be all one sentence. So we yeah, can just... Yeah, okay, so Wearing some onion rings. Goodness. <laughs> I. Said. With. Excitement. <laughs> I. Like. These. Onion. Rings. Therefore. <laughs> I. Asked. <laughs> myself. Could I cook <laughs> these onion rings while I 
Sang. A. Shanty. On. Tuesday. <laughs> Afternoon. I. Then. Caught. Some. Haddock. <laughs> and. Haddock. Is. Delicious. When. Eaten. With. Onion. <laughs> Rings. Hooray! Oh, man. Oh, wow. We did it. We did it. We did it, and you came up with rings. Now, I was going a bit more crazy than I might be. <laughs> but you came up with onion. And so you can see yeah. all I was trying to do was connect some dots. Yeah. I suppose you're kind and, of thinking, thinking ahead of yourself all the time. Well, you know what? You can't think too far ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because actually, kind of anybody things. can improvise, and... The Zen moment comes when you stop thinking ahead, because I say to people, uh, you know, there was a big pause there. They couldn't think of what to say. It wasn't they couldn't think of what to say. It's because they had so many things they could say. They didn't yeah. know which one to choose. Yeah. And that is the thing. And so people will. Uh, Keith Johnson, who's the guru of uh, improv from this side of the Atlantic anyway, recently passed. And he said people will spend years in monasteries mm. to find to empty their minds and that's where you need with improv to get. And actually, um, what stops us improvising, what stops us listening is because we've got all this stuff in our head. Because I bet you had an idea of fishing of where it could lead. Yeah. And what was the shadow story in your head? <laughs> I don't know. Was Bob Mortar involved? Were you seeing a fishing rod? Were you seeing... Well, that's the thing. You kind of see a picture in your mind, don't you, I suppose, of... Exactly. You know, where that, things can go. And that's fine. And then the thing is, we co-created a picture that neither of us saw. Yeah. And that's the joy of it, is that you can't not have a little picture of where it might go. You might be thinking fish and chips. You might be thinking fishing rod. You might be thinking bait. Yeah. And at some point, I don't know how we got to, as a man wearing onion. <laughs> um, because I, I didn't, I, at some when it's, I saw a big, and I, I thought, was it a big fish, a big man? I don't know. You probably had an idea, didn't you? Did you see a big fish? Um, I think I was I was more concentrated on the onions. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think the onions came later. So we saw a big man wearing yeah, a big man. So I know that um, generally, to make an improv scene work, there's got to be something at stake. So mm. a big man, he could be dangerous. He could be friendly. Um, and once you've introduced onion rings, you want to forget them for a moment, and then at some point. Uh, go back to where you started fishing because we got lost, you know. Yeah. So I can hear the punters at home going, what happened to the fishing? <laughs> yeah. It might, it might have been Paula and I, you know, sent each other emails. Let's do the onion ring bit. Totally, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm then, afraid. Exactly. And that's the joy. And people, even now, who've seen more than one show, occasionally come up and say, you must have some bits. Yeah. Uh, at some, some, And the only bits we have generally are you kind of want to tie up loose ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you've given onion rings, you want to know what they've got to do with fishing. Um, if there's a love scene, you either want them to be together forever or their hopes to be dashed and one of them dies, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's Shakespeare. Um, so or you kind of know there's an easy laugh to be had when you say exactly what everyone's expecting. And sometimes you say the complete opposite. Yeah. Um, and those are kind of in Commedia dell'arte. They had uh, what's called a, um, a lazzo, which is a comedy bit. Right. So, for example, um, the old thing where somebody leaves the stage, uh, no, somebody comes on carrying a ladder and they go across the stage and then they run all the way around and they're, they're carrying the other end. 
yeah. that's a lazo, um, uh, a kind of comedy bit, which they in Commedia dell'arte they'd have stock characters, they'd have the lovers, they'd have the the pompous captain soldier who didn't know what he was doing, the the wise servant, and you can see these have been used. Jeeves and Wooster, Shakespeare used the, yeah, yeah. them in improv. You know, comedy characters riding for a fall. Uh, the cheeky one who winks at the audience who knows more than his status in life should suggest. So in those terms, we do have some ideas of what helps a story. But of course, we love it when somebody says onion rings. <laughs> we love it. And the audience then kind of see us teetering on the high wire saying, what are they going to do with those onion <laughs> rings? <gonna> go. <laughs> and all we're thinking is it's quite easy somehow the onion rings have to make sense in terms of what we'd established before that. Yeah. Broadly speaking, because most stories don't have a, a lot of elements. Yeah. You, you set out the starting elements. You set out what might be at risk or uh, what might be possible to gain. And then there's some obstacles along the way. And you're rooting for your protagonist, your heroine, your hero to win. Um, and we don't want them to win too easily. Anyway, that's. That's basically it. So, Paula, you are an improviser. Shall I send a diploma through the post to you? I think I need one. That was amazing. <laughs> you were amazing. Like I said, I would have been like, I could never, I could never do anything like that. You know, it's, it's so easy to think, oh, God, it's so, such a scary thought. We're well. Making stuff up on the spot. It's well, well, we did it together. We did. We did it together. And next time you do it, you'll be even better. And you'll have worked out some of the technique here, which is don't think too far ahead. You'll have trusted in the process. And then there'll be other ways of doing this, really living in the moment. Actually, one word is one of the hardest games because we don't tend to think of one word at a time. We think of three Ooh, words. Yeah. Uh, and so when you do some of the exercise, you can say a sentence and that's a little bit easier to control. This is a really good exercise in lack of control. Right. So this this was the thing that, Mike and Kit introduced us to the joy of improv and the audience loves to see you teetering on the edge of disaster. <laughs> they um, really do. They really which do. they wouldn't with a stand up. Mm. Um, when you arrive and I've seen King Gong, they do at the comedy store uh, last Monday of the month. When you arrive, you can see the panic. And I've seen people just kind of, they can't remember anything at all, not even their name. <laughs> yeah, it was and, like the uh, the gong show thing that uh, that Mike did. A while oh yes, back when he yes. was he was up, uh, a character, he was doing it in character. Mike, Mike played a character which, <laughs> um, what was he trying to be? It was a kind of mix of of he was a bit Tommy Cooper, a bit Broadway, yeah. a bit Nicholas Parsons, a bit musical. So I, that's very good. It's not been shown here in the UK, but I helped him English it up a bit. Yeah, because um, uh, he wore British not very good teeth as ever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, so the gong show, uh, again, this kind of really, you want to see some really bad ones and you want to see some really good ones. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think the first time I saw yourself and Mike was this, the Sound of Seat Club was a big thing. Uh, you know, Ola, I had no idea. Sound you don't look that Club. old. <laughs> I was, I was, I was very, very young. I was still in the crib when I was, when I was watching it. But yeah, that was, I think that was my, the first time I, I saw yourself and Mike. And it was just <laughs> in your dressing gowns. And <laughs> just well, we, crazy. Mike is very good at taking an existing shape yeah. and saying, let's subvert that. So uh, of the producers had seen us being funny in a club, the comedy store somewhere, and said, come on our show. 
So we watched it. I mean, <laughs> it was on from 7 a.m. or something like that. So yeah, I videoed yeah. Yeah. on a VHS and we watched it and we thought, what can we do? We thought, okay, the only thing we can do is parody their existing bits. Yeah. So it was things like fashion for under 50p or something. <laughs> So we, yeah, did, we did fashion for under 10p, so you can use a 10p as an earring, things like that. So it was all kind of a bit lame. And we said, we'll be the Sound Asleep Club. So again, Mike's very good at saying, let's take that thing and just subvert it. Subvert it, yeah. Um, so we, um, I think we brought our own dressing gowns. Uh, later when we went to Edinburgh, I think I wrote to some fashion firm or men's <laughs> outfit. And said, can you give us, can you, you give us dressing, your dressing gowns? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, and we got the makeup people to give us bedhead. Yeah, yeah. And the producers at TVAM were very good because they said, okay, Sound Asleep Club, we will do a sting, which is that uh, a little tiny bit of song. So it was normally, we're wide awake. Yes. <laughs> and ours was, they had a graphic, we're sound asleep. And they obviously multi-tracked various tired men going, we're sound asleep. <laughs> so we were on the back <laughs> I'm doing thing. In fact, one time we were on with Gloria Estefan of Miami Sound Machine, yeah. and we did the ladder gag. <laughs> <laughs> we did it with rope, where Mike went across, then ran around the camera, and then he was carrying the other end of it. <laughs> While she was having a serious interview with James Baker or somebody like that, um, so we had we were there before actually Timmy Mallet, but we had Arabella. Uh, yes, Arabella. It wasn't Arabella. Where is the other one? <laughs> Anyway, yeah, yeah, Arabella was lovely, um, and uh, Tommy Boyd as well, who we I knew Magpie, and they were just very kind to us and let us send them up really, um, and a lot of people of a certain age will remember that, and then we did that a couple of times. Then Mike was back to Canada, so I did it with Mm. Nick Cock, with whom I did a double act, and that was fun. And then neither Nick was available nor Mike, so I did it on my own. So, um, I. I ripped off a Tommy Cooper thing where he plays um, two characters. So he had a hat where he's, say, Robin Hood, and yeah. then his hat wears the sheriff of Rotterdam. <laughs> so I sort of talked to myself, and then I had a sort of fight. And then I was hanging around near Trafalgar Square the next day, I think, and then there was a school party, and I was mobbed. <laughs> it was kind of very bizarre because, of course – you don't see people off the telly. Yeah. Oh, it was um, huge. Well, you didn't in the 80s. It was and it was kind of, they were comp- and, and we were hardly, you know, five two-minute items or something in a two-hour yeah, yeah. show. But I suppose we had, you know, the brand recognition of Sound Asleep Club. Um, and a lot of people will remember that. It's about the only television that Mike and I have done, really, apart from the one I mentioned, the YouTube that was in Edinburgh. Yeah. By Jimmy Mulville. So um, uh, the only British television we did. So that's kind of... And I, I don't even, there's some photos, there's no video to be had. I've got a VHS somewhere up in my loft. Heaven knows how I could download that. But I, I owe it to my children, or they'd probably be completely not interested. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if it's not TikTok, they're not, <laughs> they're not interested. Yeah, well, of course, I make them watch things. I made, made my son watch Breaking Bad. <laughs> oh, no. First Friends. Oh, Which I like too. Yeah, but. I mean, you've done you've done a, done a few bits and bobs with Mike in a lot of Mike's films. Like Pentaveret was just I I loved loved the Pentaveret. Just I love how well, versatile Mike is. You know, well, he has all these different characters, and he's incredible. You know, he is, and um, that's what I could tell very early on. He could do mm. these brilliant characters, and. 
he could turn himself to any kind of performance, if you like. So he could do serious, crazy, different voices, change his body. Um, and so it was no surprise that he's become who he's become at all to me. Um, combined with his work ethic. Yeah, the, yeah, I've heard people, he's incredibly hard. The people I know who work hardest are Mike Myers and Eddie Izzard. Yeah. So not to say they're not talented, but both both of them will say we we've done our 10,000 hours. Yeah. Um, they really do work hard at their craft and will not rest really until until it's as good as it can be. Yeah. But he's, it, I don't know. Mike, he just seems to reinvent himself every time you hear he's done something new. It's totally different to everything he's he's done before. As I said, well, I think he's, he's the, whole Austin Power, the whole Austin Powers thing was well, crazy. yeah, it was crazy. And I remember after Wayne's World two, it wasn't as well received as Wayne's yeah, World. Yeah. Um, and he'd done Sorry, I'm Out of an Axe Murder, which I helped him do some rewrites on. Both of those hadn't quite as done as well as Wayne's World one, so he was kind of wondering, what do I do next? And he sent me a script saying, this is what I've written as a sort of thing that I'll use as a, you know, this is my style. This. Hmm. And and I read it and I said, this is hilarious. Do this. <laughs> and luckily, uh, Jennifer Todd uh, and her sister who worked for Demi Moore's production company said, yeah, let's do this. But it was a big risk yeah, because yeah. Wayne had been a big hit on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And Austin Powers was a parody James Bond sort of with Carry On. How is that going to play? And the multiplex in Indiana. Yeah. And um, a lot of people didn't have the required reading. And Mike will tell you um, that when they did the sort of screenings uh, in part of Los Angeles that perhaps wasn't so well represented, not so English speaking area, who perhaps didn't know James Bond, certainly wouldn't know Carry On, it, the ratings were terrible. But the boss uh, of uh, New Line said, I don't care. I think it's funny. <laughs> Um, and he was right, but it was a very low budget film. Mike had done the character occasionally, um, uh, just to see how well at the groundlings, yeah. the improv theater in Los Angeles, but it was a risk because it, it had no prior, you know, the, the brand was n unknown. Mm. Um, and Mike playing two characters as well that adds to the expense. And so when I did Austin Powers one, it was very low budget. Uh, I had sort of two hours to film my bit and luckily I, uh, it was in scene. It was my Swedish made in larger scene. Um, and it was Mike and Elizabeth Hurley. So I didn't know Elizabeth Hurley, but when Mike had sent me the script, he said, who do you think is good for this? And I said, you must have Liz Hurley. Wow. So she's exactly right. You know, uh, she's accomplished actress, beautiful, posh, yeah. but with a twinkle. She yeah. can do that. Um, and luckily they got her. Um, but I was able to talk to her because I was in a cricket team years later with <laughs> Hugh Grant, Andy Taylor, and Chris Lang uh, from the Jockeys of Norfolk, uh, which was called An England Eleven. Right. Chris England would used yeah. to play uh, Arthur Smith's team cricket every, you know, most Sundays in the summer. So I, I, I would say, you know, I've kept up with Chris and Andy and, and uh, played cricket with Hugh and so forth. So it, it was reasonably relaxed, but we had to get it done. We were, it wasn't a studio. It was actually a, a real sort of military <laughs> place. So you kind of, you know, had to show ID on your way in. And it was... Um, oh, wow. And we had to get out by 6 p.m. And I wasn't, I didn't get on till 4 p.m. But luckily, Jay Roach is a very good director. So he would encourage me and then we'd get it in the can. And he does this a lot with Mike. It's kind of, then let's do one where it's, you know, a bit crazy. Yeah. 
yeah. and, and fiddle with the script and, and the tone and, and we won't cut until quite late. <laughs> yeah. No, I would have said Mike um, would have improved a lot. Exactly. And sometimes that would be great and that would lead to, to more. And yeah. sometimes what we had was fine and etc. But, but Jay was, uh, there are some directors where you think, why did you say cut? Cause something was about to happen. Well, because in, in many movies and TV, that's, you've done the line, that's it. <laughs> but with that kind of creative environment, things were able to happen. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's why Jay was such a good director for those movies. So yes, I was in Austin Powers 1 and Austin Powers 3. Austin Powers 3, this stage, you know, uh, it's much bigger budget. I'm put yeah. up in a grand hotel. Previously, I had to stay at Mike's house. I'm in a grand hotel. Um, Mike said, "We will. I'll fly your wife out. And I was there for two weeks to do a, a scene not much longer, but it was technically very difficult because uh, Mike was actually on wires walking, <laughs> walking on Minnie-Me's shoulders, which is, <laughs> you know, physically impossible. And so we shot a bit of it, then couldn't get it. And then ha- they had to, they were booked in to do some exter- exteriors with a dance group. So I had to come back. So I'm in LA having a good time for two weeks. Um, but they also, it's quite difficult because they had to paint out the wires. So they had to make sure that the, <laughs> Whatever was behind the wire had to be paint outable, uh, that kind of stuff. So, uh, it's funny because my wife is not in showbiz. And so she, she came on the set one day and she just looked around and said, who are all these people? What are they doing? And I said, well, they're doing nothing, but if something goes wrong, they'll sort it out immediately. Um, and so there was kind of fairly quiet, but really there's only one person talking, the director, but. You know, if the light goes, you've got to have somebody there. If, if yeah. the generator goes or electricity, you've got to have the generator. If a prop, suddenly say, I need a prop, uh, that looks a little bit like a chicken, um, uh, that's come from the 1930s. You go to standby props and they've got a van full of anything that might happen. Wow. Most of which will never be used, but you don't want to be saying, Oh, right. I'll just pop down to the shop while everyone waits at a thousand dollars a nanosecond. So it's, it was interesting for her. how dull a, a film set is. And again, that's where Mike is very good because. Doing comedy over and over, you lose any sense of it being funny. Mm. You want to get the crew to laugh first time, but then the crew shouldn't laugh because they'll be heard. So you would, you have to maintain your concentration on why was this funny when I first thought of it uh, and keep going. And so and do the same, do the same. And then, OK, let's play with it rather than I'm so bored. Can we move on? <laughs> I mean, I think it was one of uh, Will Ferrell's. First roles, wasn't it, in Austin Powers as uh, Mustafa? Yes, it was. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what that. I think that might have been the first time I saw him in a film role, and it was it was, it was obviously something, you know. And yes. I think he'd, he'd come from a similar background, I think, to Mike. Yes. Well, I think he was on Saturday Night Live. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He may have even come from Second City, Chicago. I don't know, but I get the feeling that all the Saturday Night Live people generally have come from an improv-based background, whether it's Second City or or something. Uh, similar. So Tina Fey, for example, mm. came from Upright Citizens. So, uh, it's very helpful in that environment as a writer and also as somebody contributing to other sketches that have been written by other people. And also a little bit give you a bit of confidence in that fairly tough environment where there's a Wednesday morning read through, a table read, and your sketch may not get se- selected. Yeah. Yeah. And then they have an audience in early Saturday evening, and your sketch may get cut before the final thing. You know, when I went to visit Mike, one of his things was cut. And so I'd come all the way uh, to New York. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and, and he'd written, actually, that's it. He'd written a sketch called Scottish Shop with him and Mel Gibson. 
Um, I could do a great Scottish accent. Mel Gibson apparently could uh, as well. And so Mike wrote a sketch around that. And then it cut. Oh, my God. So Mike was mortified. Ah, I don't mind. I'm hanging out with Mel Gibson. Yeah. Um, and so forth. But it was pretty brutal. Pretty brutal. But if you've come through that uh, process, you're going to be able, A, to withstand criticism and B, notice what's funny, what's works, what works, because you'll have seen different styles from writing to performing to editing. Uh, well, except Saturday Night, they don't edit, but the cutting, shall we say, the, the vision mixing. So you kind of get a real comedy education there hmm. um, over a fairly short period of time. Yeah. I mean, even, I suppose, going back in time, you know, like, like Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, John Belushi and all those guys were, were doing a similar thing. Well, that's the reason when Mike said, I'm from Second City, hmm. most people had never heard of it. There was actually a, company, a theatre company called Second City in Birmingham, because that would think of itself as the second city of the of England, perhaps. And he said, you know what Second City is? It's city, Second City America. Yeah, I know, because I love the Blues Brothers. Yeah. Um, and I s- took it upon myself. How how I knew that, I don't know, before Wikipedia, before the Internet, how did I discover that the Blues Brothers came from Saturday Night Live? Yeah. Saturday Night Live, many people came from Second City. I don't know, maybe I picked up a, a book or something, but I wanted to know more about Belushi and Aykroyd, mm. that environment, because Blues Brothers really appealed to me. Yeah. Um, and it's one of our family's favorite films. We watch it over and over. And so when Mike said Second City, I knew immediately the sort of thing that he had been doing. I didn't yeah. know it was improv. I knew they did sketches. I knew they did Saturday Night Live. Um, but it was a revelation to me that they did improv. They did improv shows and they used improv as a way of creating character and situations. Yeah, there was a lot of, ca- I think they did, they were making a lot of characters. I know like Melissa McCarthy, I think. Was at, yeah. I don't know if she was at Se- Second City, but she was at maybe the ground, might have been the Groundlings. Might have been yeah. So Groundlings is in, a, is in Los Angeles improv troupe. But, but basically, uh, you spend a lot of time trying to think of a character, mm. or you bring a character, and that character can sit in different situations. Because if you're not careful, some improv can be just two people standing there saying, oh, look, there's a funny thing. Oh, yeah, I know, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas if you've got a character who's got an attitude, yeah. they're high status, they're low status, they're cynical, they're naive you've got already a comedy engine mm. um, and Saturday Night Live as well gobbles up characters the audience likes to see characters they like to see the character interacting with the famous host this week yeah, yeah. characters in different situations and it, it's a shorthand mm. uh, that it makes life easier for the audience and dare I say for the writers because you've already got something of a handle of where this yeah. might lead yeah, I mean, who would have thought, you know, how big, like, Wayne's world, the, the character of Wayne would would become, you know, like Dana Carvey, I know he's still still uh, quite work, working the circuit and stuff. Yeah, well, Wayne, Mike had done, before he met me, he'd done uh, him, he was a character, Wayne was the same sort of person, but he came from Scarborough, or Scarborough, which oh, is a not-so-glamorous part of Toronto, um, and he appeared quite a lot on Much Music, which was the local Toronto music television with his friend Chris Ward, mm. who had been in Second City, became a TV uh, what TV jock, uh, and then uh, wrote and produced Alana Miles, Black Velvet. Oh, for yeah, example. yeah. So there you go. Just a bit of <laughs> rock family tree there. And so Mike sort of got on Saturday Night Live because he did a good show in front of Martin Short at the Toronto Second City anniversary. Um, but it was hard to to elbow your way in when you had established ca- people like Dana who can do any number of characters. His George yeah. Bush, 
example yeah. is Johnny Carson, are fantastic. So gradually, gradually. So I suppose it was Mike saw a moment with Aerosmith, you know, Ooh. with their ultimate fanboy. Yeah. Um, to write the theme tune, and then gradually it got that recognition. And so when I did the show with him in Toronto in 1990, Wayne was big. There were two yeah. shirts and there were caps already. And then Lorne Michaels, who's the head of Broadway Video, the executive producer of Saturday Night Live, who's created so many wonderful careers for these yeah. writers, performers, sort of he had the sense, he'd done it before, he knew how movies could work and how uh, Wayne might work. But of course, they brought in some writers, the Turners, who are right, uh, writers on Saturday Night Live, too. Because you need a story. Yeah, uh, yeah. A comedy film would, Mike would say, you need kind of 12 brilliant sketches. Yeah. And then you need to, to bring them together in terms of story. You need something to be at stake, love, loss, power, status. Um, but it was, I remember talking to Mike probably 92 when Wayne had just come out. I was really, I realized that it came out and then it became just a monster. Yeah. Um, and Mike said, I think it was done at Paramount. People would come up to him at the studio saying, you saved the studio. <laughs> 150 million or something dollars it took. And, and that can make a big difference when a studio's not done so many successes. Yeah. I mean, talk about Martin Short. I mean, like the, even the, the, the amount of comedy performers that have come out of Canada, you know, it's crazy. Obviously, Mike, you know, Martin Short. I don't know. I'm not going to bring Ryan Reynolds into it. He's not really. He's well, not John Candy. John Candy. Oh my God. Yeah. What, what an incredible Dan Aykroyd. All the Shits Creek people. Eugene Levy, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just... So, um, I th- uh, Ivan Reitman, I think, was... Mm, yes. Um yeah. Without be, be wishing to be racist, <laughs> I, I, I never want to say, you know, people from Liverpool are hilarious, people <laughs> from Glasgow are hilarious, although they are. Um, I don't know, Canadian, Mike would say there's a kind of a, a sort of... He used to say to me, when Americans watch TV, they're watching TV. When Canadians watch TV, they're watching American TV. There was always this kind of slightly looking askance at their neighbour. So I'm not yeah. saying every Canadian is hilarious, but I would say there was there's a rich cultural vein there. Yeah. A proud tradition of education, awareness. Yeah. And, of course, as soon as you have a Jim Carrey, as soon as you oh, have God, some yeah. successful Canadian performance writers, Lord Michaels is Canadian as well, so... You kind of, there must be some uh, kids in the hall, some young person saying, Oh, I, they're from Canada. That, that inspires me. Keanu Reeves, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well? So, so, a, so a nepotism going on, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's, there's a sense of, Oh, if they've done it, so can I. Yeah. Um, yeah. and they probably start off with a, a sort of a sense of sending up Canadian culture, which is always a bit, you know, the, the stereotype is it's a bit apologetic. Mm. Um, and that's a rich vein as well. But then after a while, it's, it's just funny. So in, in the way, you know, there's lots of American people who are funny and lots of um, British people are funny, Australian people are funny, and many people in non-English cultures as well. But there is a, a kind of, we, we wouldn't realise quite how many are Canadian who yeah. you think of as being from uh, North America. Yeah, I do I think they have their own kind of sensibility, their own kind of, Obviously, their own sort of cultural differences and stuff. There's obviously they kind of separate themselves from the from the Americans totally, where they're kind of their neighbours, but they're yeah, they're slightly critical neighbours. Like yeah. They can look at America <laughs> with with a slight a raised eyebrow. Uh, I dare say. <laughs> Let's talk about you. Get back to you. Get back to you, Neil. Yes. Anyway. So you're 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 a proper jack of all trades. Like you know, you you've kind of done it all. You're an author now. You're, you're sort of you're writing books. 
you've done radio, you've done TV. Um, you've got a lot of strings to your bow. Do you have a favourite aspect of what you do? Or are you kind of happy? I suppose it's nice to be able to just dip into. Well, yeah, I would say I quite like not doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah so yeah. my week next week, for example, I'm doing the comedy. Actually, I'm not doing the comedy store on Sunday because Rosie Holt is guessing with us. Anyway, um, which is a shame. I'd love to see her, but maybe I'll pop down. Um, anyway, so m- Monday, I've got a meeting. Tuesday, I'm giving a uh, an improv workshop for spec savers on Zoom. Oh, wow. Um, uh, for, <laughs> actually, for people in Vancouver. So I have to get up very early or no. Oh, my God. I can't remember what, what I'm going to do. Um, so I like the fact that uh, one day I'm performing on the stage just yeah. to be funny with my friends from comedy store players. The next day I'm using those skills to enhance group cohesion, it's team build, it's creativity. And then the next day, actually, yes, Monday, I'm working with an individual. Um, and, and I like to coach people. And it's the stuff I'm talking a bit, a bit about, about how to be confident, about how people think in the moment when I'm not sure what to say. What do I, oh, no, there's a clever person. Yeah. Say, You're a clever person. Take a breath. If in doubt, pick up a thread they give gave you. So I love um, doing workshops with a small group for a day. That may be my favorite thing because I get to know them mm. over that period. They do what we did with you very briefly, Paula, there, which is they come in. Oh, I'm at the comedy store. Oh, I'm doing a workshop, an improv. Oh, no, I've got to be funny. Gradually, they realize, oh, it's not quite about being funny. It's about using an improv form and mindset, which does lead to a theater genre, yeah. which is funny. But actually, it's going to help me with my day to day. And then actually they get up in front of their peers and they make the others laugh. And that's such you can physically see their their the change in their body. Mm. So I love that. Uh, I like to work with an individual because then you can be quite candid with them. Yeah. Um, say things like, don't say I'm an er. You know what you're talking about. Be strategic. Yeah. So what makes you, you, rather than trying to fit into somebody else's idea of what you should be, embrace who you are. Uh, I can help you with very simple coaching. Slow down. Plan a few ideas. Use your voice, not in a weak kind of, hello, do you mind if I share my thoughts? If you just slow down and breathe a bit, you know, those kind of differences. Sometimes I do a keynote to a thousand people for an hour. That's great fun. I quite actually don't like doing Zoom because I get a little bit of excitement. You're in Dublin now and therefore we're, we're crossing the sea. Sometimes I do it with global teams and it's exciting just to peer into Colombia or Singapore or Albania. Yeah. Rwanda once I did. Um, and that's quite exciting. So the answer and, and uh, the answer is I'd like doing it all. Even I've got this book coming out in June 2023 called In the Moment, which is about my 24 years of teaching improv and other skills to people. And I've got chapters on creativity, collaboration, leadership, meetings, serendipity, improv. And basically, I'm saying I've learned a lot. I came with the stuff I talked about earlier. Improv is listening, working with ambiguity, coping with diversity and, and seeing that as creative. Uh, then I've learned as well, people are a bit shy. Uh, how do I make you not so shy? Because then you will feel more yourself. So I've, in, I've enjoyed writing the book. I wouldn't want to write books all the time. It's quite lonely. Yeah. Um, but I've managed to do it in such a way where I've fitted in an hour and a half here and stuff. And I'm quite good at doing it in... Uh, on trains and stuff like that. Yeah, so, I mean, what, was it a long pro- was it a long process? 
Actually, it was quite, it was relatively short, but I've been writing this book for 24 years. Yes. It's an essay crisis hanging (laughs) over me. And so, uh, I, I sort of did it, uh, I, I did it in six months. Right, right. Nearly all of the stuff was stuff I'd thought in the interview in the previous 20 years. Yeah. I had written some bits here and there. I've written articles, but basically it's all the stuff that I've thought and been taught by people who've come to my workshops when they say, Oh, I see that works for you on the stage. Something similar works for me in the boardroom or on the factory floor or wherever, uh, or dealing with clients. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was, and it's quite good. That it was quick because I just had to do it. And then there was a process of editing and making sure my spelling was right. And I hadn't slandered anybody. Um, so uh, it was fairly quick, but it was 20 years in the making. So I like all of it. I like doing the comedy store players. I like doing one-on-one coaching. I love running workshops. That's possibly mm. the, my favorite, I guess. And I also like writing because sometimes I don't know what I think until I start writing it. Yeah. Um, and also people have asked me a lot over the years, we spent a day with you, but can we have some more? And now at last I can say, here it is. You can have it. it there it is. Yeah. There's more. The, the um, days at Cambridge have paid off. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have gone to a place where I made lots of friends and some people are impressed that I went there and I had to work hard to get the A-levels and do the exam to get in. But uh, I, <laughs> one thing I did learn was how to write an essay fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. You could have become, it could have not gone to Cambridge. You could be, could have been a bin man or a... Well, what I what I admire greatly is I see a lot of comedy people who didn't go to university at all. Yeah. And they're so they're so well read, <laughs> much better read than me. Um, and so I've always thought that I was fortunate to do what I did because I made friends and I got a, I got a leg up with the footlights. That's definitely it. I got to play big theatres very early in my career. However, there are so many people who didn't go to university at all who are brilliant and some who've been to other universities. It's sort of, and people go to Cambridge who are not particularly, yeah. uh, you know, haven't been, used their education particularly. So um, I would say <laughs> I did learn how to write essays because I was so busy doing footlights and directing shows. I, I'd sometimes get up at 4 a.m. to write an essay that I handed, I handed in, I had to read out at 9 a.m. to a, a teacher. Oh, my God. That's called a supervision <laughs> where you read out, you read out your own essay and they're going, oh, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> So I, I learned to manage my time, possibly not in the best way, but I learned yeah. to write things quickly, which I think is a skill. Um, and so it's interesting because um, I've just realized this summer that I took my English language O-level uh, when I was 14. We took it a year early and I was a year early than I was a year above, whatever. Anyway, but I only got a B in it. And I got a, And I hear my writing books. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, although I may have achieved an academic circles in some respects i want to say to anybody out there you can do whatever you want i got a b in my english language o-level <laughs> i didn't do that well um and now here am i making a living as a as a writer exactly. so uh I, I found my voice i think that's it. I, I was not bold enough hmm. when i was 14 to say i know anything about the world i hated having to make stuff stuff up it's interesting i hated having to do creative essays making yeah. up stories i didn't know where to start and improv has given me that. So Onion Rings and Haddock uh, <laughs> has come from... If, if only I'd had that when I was 14. Yeah. And on the other hand, or you had to write a non-fiction thing, and I, I didn't know how to do that. I, had, I didn't know how to arrange an argument. I didn't know how yeah. to be logical. And those are worthwhile skills in life. 
Yeah. I mean, I say a lot of, you know, published authors didn't, probably didn't do that well at school. And, you know, it just goes to show that you can do anything, really, if you put your mind to it. Well, exactly. I've met so many people who didn't start doing what they're doing now. Um, they were told they couldn't do what they're doing now. Um, and that's part of what I love doing about my work. I like meeting people in my workshops who are doing something they do love or might be thinking I'm adjacent to what I do love. Yeah. And I'm thinking, go for it rather than regret not doing it or do this in the way that you really believe you can do it mm. and will be effective rather than thinking I better do what I'm supposed to. Yeah. So, I mean, what was the, what was the catalyst behind you? It's all, you know, it's all kind of all well and good. You know, you're doing improv uh, and helping people. But how what was the catalyst behind you becoming a, like a coach and, and teaching people? Uh, how did well, you make that transition? There was a push and pull, sure. <laughs> uh, i.e. I was a bit sort of looking around thinking, do I want to be doing just comedy when I'm 50? And the bits that I don't like, I don't do anymore. Yeah. The bits I didn't like were going for an audition for a crappy thing, yeah. looking at the script of an advert or something, and saying, I don't really want to do this. Yeah. I better, because I, I, how else do I earn money? Now I earn money elsewhere, other ways. Uh, I always wrote down what I like doing. I like performing with the comedy store players. I like teaching, and I like running my own little business. I wrote those down, Ooh. and that's what I do now. Yeah. Um, so there was a kind of, do I want to be doing this? And Or, frankly... Uh, You'd often turn up to a radio or TV. There's a pilot. We'll do the new game show, panel show. We've yeah. seen who's lying. We've seen they think it's all over. Let's do one about this topic. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of, and go, comedians, you write funny stuff. And I'm not very good at those panel games. And also you had to kind of write quite a lot of stuff in the afternoon. Also, you couldn't improvise like I improvise, where they'd say, <laughs> fishing, and, and go for it. <laughs> It would need to be, so Neil, tell us the funny line you've prepared. So, yeah. And I'm not very good at that. I, I, that has its place, yeah. but I'm not very good at that. So it's kind of, do I want to be doing that for the rest of my life? And there was also the other thing, which is my degrees in economics and social and political science. I chose that because I'm interested in people. Yeah. yeah. My hero growing up was Desmond Jones, mm -hmm. who we used to be a, a guest on Parkinson, the big chat show here uh, in the UK. And Desmond Jones did a, a book and a TV series called Man Watching. So he's a zoologist. And he looks at body language in the same of, of human beings in the same way he would, would at primates. Right. And I began to realize things about eye contact yeah. and gesture and status. And so did that for, for the last two years of my degree, sociology, political sociology, um, childhood development. How do we get character? Uh, is there such a thing as personality? Where do we end up? And the book I read the only book I read all the way through was by Jimmy Boyle, the Scottish painter, former public enemy number one. I was fascinated by how do we end up where we end up? He didn't end up where perhaps he might have done, being coming up with a really tough childhood. He became an artist and a writer. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, so I, it was kind of, I was always interested in people, how people behave, how people and groups interact. And so I kind of... There was a, an open day once at the comedy store, where the, the academic input of comedy. So I found sociologists and psychologists talking about comedy. Um, John Cleese had talked a bit about comedy, about comedy has a role beyond just making people laugh. It brings us together. It may, in the wrong hands, separate people. Yeah. And Arnold Brown, 
who uh, a stand-up comedian who'd come through the alternative comedy boom of uh, the 80s with the comics yeah. was there. And he said, I've, I've got this project with a doctor. <laughs> um, and I said, oh, can I play? I wrote to them. And we became the Academy of Laughter and Health. Um, so Arnold Brown and Dr. Brian Kaplan, who for the purposes of the show was called Dr. Fishhead, because <laughs> there we go, fish. He had a tie, which was made of wood, but it was made of fish. Um, and we did it at the Freud Museum in Hampstead. And then we did the New End Theatre, which is a former mortuary. But just looking at when is comedy more than just making people laugh. Comedy has historical roots. Comedy, psychologically powerful. Comedy is a way of creating connection. Mm. And I met a, a professional psychology or organizational behavior at London Business School. And he's, he's a Darwinian. And I said, I said, that's all about tooth and claw. He said, no, it's not. And he said, actually, a sense of humor brings people together. And that's why it's often in the old days of personal columns and time out you know gsoh good sense of humor we want it yeah. from yeah. we want that more than good looks don't we and because it brings us together if you can combine the herd the tribe with humor in a way that engages all that means we'll share our food so there's an evolutionary psychology so you know i sort of started getting interested in in all of the possibilities yeah. that humor could have beyond merely being a professional comedian uh, I found out about the comedy school. I'm now the chair of trustees, which explicitly uses comedy in the mental health arena. Wow. Uh, they do a show showing that goes around children's schools. Don't use a bladed weapon, a knife. You're more likely to be a victim of knife yeah. crime if you yeah. carry one. Yeah. Uh, so don't make it cool. Hand in your knives. Don't become subject to peer pressure. So quite serious moments and they're doing things with military ve veterans who have suffered all sorts of things but cheats them improv comedy and they become wow more powerful they become confident homeless people there's lots of improv projects where there were across the world and the uk saying how do we use this simple thing and it, it might be stand-up comedy i went to see the comedy school doing a show prisoners at brixton and keith palmer the genius who created the comedy school said Ten days ago, they couldn't even look us in the eye. Now look at them. They're on stage. So stand-up is quite lonely and quite demanding. But if you bring improv to a group uh, as a therapeutic intervention, as a team build, it's really powerful. And so I'm doing that in, in the corporate sector, probably, uh, more than in that area where the comedy school operates. But it's really powerful. So anyway, that my story was I wanted to know more about this. There were some interesting things along the way. So, for example... Dr. Fishhead, Brian Kaplan, told me about the guy doing provocative therapy, played me a cassette of him with Frank Farrelly, who was a professor of social work and psychotherapist, um, who used provocative therapy. And he played yeah. me the tape. Um, so, Brian, things like you, t he teased them. Brian, clearly, you, you know, you, you, your whole family thinks you're an idiot. <laughs> And and things like, uh, you, I want to go out smoking. Smoking? Why not? Smoking is fantastic. You should smoke more. And so what then does it makes the client go, actually, do I want to give up smoking? It's now up to me. And and so I went to visit Frank Farrelly yeah. in Madison, Wisconsin, and to, to discuss his work. And he told me, even one time, somebody came to his office and said, I want, I'm going to commit suicide. I've had enough. And Frank went, oh, right. You smoke, don't you? Yeah. Could you give me your cigarettes? Because I, you know, if you, you won't need them. <laughs> Any spare change in your pocket? Give me that. You, and then the guy goes, well, hang on a minute. 
do I want to commit? It, it kind of wow. satirizing their self-limiting beliefs. Now, this is obviously a high risk in that area. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. but he, he said there are so many clients who've been through a psychological process counseling who just didn't react. And when he confronted them with humor and made them think about what do they really want, they, there was, there was a breakthrough. Yeah, yeah. I, I went to see him. He, he did a session in the Netherlands and there were lots of people there from uh, neuro-linguistic programming, which is a, a psychological way of looking at the world, except they tend to just say, what's, what's somebody doing? Let's model that. Somebody's a good joke teller. Let's do jokes and we'll follow what you do with your body language. And that's, it's kind of adopting best practice. But uh, there were a lot of them were executive coaches. And I'd never heard of that. I'd coach I'd heard in terms of football or sport. Yeah. And they said, no, no, we're helping business to, to, to uh, individuals to, to find who and what, what they need to do. Yeah. Um, and so Frank was brilliant. And I thought, actually, why not? He's doing improv. He's basically taking one thing from the person, fishing, and then adding onion rings, and then coming back to fishing, yeah. and then making them smile. And obviously, quite often when the breakthrough came, when somebody went, yeah, actually, I should stand up for myself. Or, yes, the thing is, I do need to get rid of that. Or, I should stop pretending I want to be this. And there was a physical change in their voice. They smiled, they laughed, they they breathed deeper. Mm. And I thought, I wonder if I can borrow that just gently in my yeah. work. So that was that. And then gradually, gradually, there were some lucky moments. So my wife was best woman to a, somebody getting married. The hen night, she sat next to a, somebody who worked for management consultancy. And they said, actually, we could do with somebody like Neil because we've been having Shakespearean actors train us in our voice. And actually, Neil's better because he'll train us in how to deal with a tricky situation. Um, Sachi and Sachi, the ad agency, approached my voice agent and said, we want Neil to do something for us. We're, we're, um, and luckily, I talked to her about what I want to do. And she said, well, you've asked me to ask Neil to do 20 minutes stand-up comedy on credit cards. <laughs> you can't do that. But he could do an improv thing to loosen, yeah. help you find your creativity. Wow. And gradually, gradually, I had the confidence, having done a few workshops, to say, I think I'm beginning to understand now what it is that I have to offer. I wrote to a business school and a guy said, oh, that's great. That's exactly what we want. Hmm. And so I was taught as much by the participants as much as I was teaching them. Yeah. Because I thought initially it was just improv, listen better, have better conversations. And then I realized there was a whole kind of theoretical world out there of leadership in uncertainty. Yeah. Because when you are a leader, you're not turning a cog or pressing a button. If I do this, everyone will do this. No, you've got to work out how do I influence them? Yeah. I can say this, but they won't do it. They might do it, but not wanting to do it. They might just sit there and say, I don't want to do it. Or they'll say, yeah, yeah, we'll do it and think it's a terrible idea. They might just go home and complain about me. Unless we find a human way to interact with people and each individual has a different way of being guided and sometimes as a leader you don't know the answer and that's why the improv thing is how do i make the other person look good that's a really profound leadership lesson it's not i'm the leader i should know the answer to everything which brings enormous stress mm. it's actually how do i arrange the team and our discussions that they begin to ask the questions themselves yeah i won't know the, all the answers how can i yes and yeah. the environment yeah um on the other hand, are there moments when I need to say, this is what we're going to do, and I need to give clear direction. And almost moment by moment, there's got to be 
understanding, is this a moment of, ooh, got to be a bit fuzzy, let's see what happens, or if I'm very clear about where we need to go, that's going to help us and that'll move us in the right direction. And that dynamic is tough. And if you learn some improv skills, you can learn to hold the ambiguity more readily. Yeah. Oh, you obviously you're changing lives, Neil. I mean, even reading some of the testimonials on your your website. I mean, it's you know, the work you're doing is incredible. Thank you very much. I acknowledge that some people take it very, very deeply and will say, I remember that thing and I do that thing now because of you. I acknowledge for some it's just let's have some fun. And I'm very happy to say for three hours in my company, we've laughed together because often the boss will say, we don't do that normally. Yeah. But I I wouldn't, first of all, uh, I would modestly say I'm offering the skills and drills of the last hundred years that thousands and thousands of people have used and developed. And I was lucky to be offered by Mike Myers Mm -hmm. and then developed with the Comedy Store players and have been taught by people how they might apply. I would say that I, I work um, in, a, in an area where I feel very excited. So Teresa Norton, who's an improv teacher as well from Hong Kong, she said, what we're dealing with is those 35 to 40 hours people work rather than the, just the two hours they go to a comedy club yeah. or the theater. And, I, I, and, and that, that's enough for me. I'm helping people just think a little bit more. If I'm just bringing a, a little bit of laughter and a little bit of acceptance of their vulnerability and their fragility, and also willingness and need and competence at collaboration, then I've I've done my job. Yeah. I mean, it's just given that little bit of different perspective, isn't it? Something so small. It's amazing how something so small can make such a big impact on a person's person's life. Yeah. The basic thing about improv is, is treat what the other person says as an offer. So how can I accept your offer and then wrap it up and give it back to you as an offer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really all it is. And so once you've accepted that, and it's not that easy to really understand one, unless you've experienced it. So, Paul, you, you briefly experienced it with the underlings. And because you were thinking, I can't improvise because you yeah. might have been I'm not very funny or I can't do this. And I mean, uh, where will I go? And then get rid of that. You don't need that. Keith Johnson said, once you let go of the fear of being seen as mad, bad or wrong. Yeah be a great improviser so it's very simple that idea what she says what he's given me is an offer it's an opening it's an opportunity rather than i've got to win uh it's an uh, it's an under uh, it's undermining me uh, yeah. i've got to do better than that yeah. uh, gosh how can i go through my own mental rolodex of a million things of how do i respond to that no don't go internal go external say she's just given me a something and it may be a word and if i just bounce it back mm-hmm. um we're both winning. Yeah. Let's talk a tiny bit about your writing process. I mean, do you have a, everyone seems to have their own way of working. Are you a person that maybe you're observing, you're taking notes as you're kind of out and about? How do you, how do you tend to write? I mean, I know obviously with improv, you don't need to worry too much about preparation. When you're actually writing, how do you, what's your process? Well, I think there's a couple of things here. First of all, comedy writers. I don't think I'm a comedy writer. Um, I probably realized that <laughs> when I was at university because there were some brilliant comedy writers around. Um, and I have written, I mean, I have yeah. written comedy. Yeah. I've always liked to do it with somebody else. So there's an element of improv, the riffing. So I've, I loved writing with Mike Myers. I loved writing with Nick Hancock. 
I loved writing with uh, Tony Hawk's as Tony well. Tony Hawk's, yeah, absolutely. Morris Miner's Marvelous Motors, which Tony oh, Hawk's man. was in. Pivotal, uh, pivotal show. Well, I heard you talking about it with Tony Harza. We thought it was a late night Channel 4 thing. Somehow it got onto one Saturday afternoon. So the craziness seemed yeah. more crazy. So when I have written comedy, I've done it with somebody else. So there I do bounce. We do yeah. yes and. We do give and take. Um, and that's quite exciting. It's exhausting because a lot of things don't work. But you've got somebody there to laugh and tell you when it's a funny thing. Um, I have written comedy since those things when I've written my one-man shows and yeah. occasionally a corporate video and stuff like that. So I suppose what I do is I'll acknowledge the intuitive side of it. I'll write down stuff. Um, and I don't know where it's come from. And I'm not quite sure what to do there. And then later I'll work out what to do with it a bit. So what I tend to do is, and I, this is what I advise anybody writing anything, get some ideas down as soon as possible. Write them down, longhand, pen and paper, whatever, or on your phone, voice memo, Ooh. smartphone. Just speak out some words. And then what happens is once you've got something out there, ideas will come a little bit. When you're walking about, yeah. you suddenly think, oh, that's a way of saying it. And this was said to me by a management consultant who got a PhD in neuroscience. He said, the brain thinks in parallel, not in series. Mm. So I, we're not thinking A, B, C, D. Even now, I'm thinking a little bit about the dinner I'm going to have to cook for my family in a minute. What do I need to do? Even I can't help but do that. And when I'm walking about, things pop into your head. Yeah, yeah. And like when you remember somebody's name or a word when you're walking, driving, having a shower, let that subconscious brain start working as soon as possible. So that's what I do. I try and write a few ideas, bullet points for what it might be, um, and then go away. And I suppose I do that with writing, whether it's nonfiction or comedy. Um, you will, on the improv stage, sometimes you'll have thought something during the week, and there may be a character you've overheard, and you might bring them, but you're not in a in a, such a conscious, linear process as you might be when writing something. But something may have affected you, or you should think of a topical thing. It's much more bouncing on the waves rather than going deep in the ocean. So generally, I, t I tend to, uh, I'm more confident now writing comedy because I've written a character. Uh, I do a show and a book, Don't Be Needy, Be Succeedy. With that, I wrote a reams and reams of stuff. And I had a brilliant, brilliant dramaturg called Kate Coleman, who started a project called Seen and Heard, mm -hmm. which is about using drama to empower disadvantaged children Ooh. in camden town children who might maybe not doing as well at school as they might they're sent to this project and they spend um every tuesday for six weeks with a professional writer and then a weekend and they write a sketch wow. and then a few days later it's performed by professional actors i think it's based on something in new york called the 51st street project or something like that Ooh. But it's using writing not to make children writers, but to, they have one-on-one -on -one attention from a grown-up and they see a project through. Yeah. And so she dramaturged me. I wrote all this stuff. We went through it and she, we worked out what was crap. <laughs> and so basically that would be my writing advice is do lots of stuff and get rid of the crap. Yeah. But you sometimes have to wade through the crap to find the gold. Yeah. Accomplished writers do go straight to the nugget. Mm. There's less crap. They've got processes and rhythms, but da da ba ding And these, uh, so for example, just somebody like Ian Patterson, Departed Now, who wrote uh, Program Associate on, I'm sorry, having the clue and other things, just comes up with just beautifully formed lines, Yeah. for example. Anyway, 
Um, so that would be my process, which is a little bit of get it down, wander around a bit. I'm not saying, oh, there's a funny character. I must do him. But what I do is so for the Elvon Spencer character, he's the world's worst motivational guru. I immediately knew he was a mixture of three different people. I won't say who the two were, but the third was me, uh, was the dark side. Somebody said Jung talks about the shadow. So right. I, I put in, in the character all the things I don't admit about myself in public, in private company or, you know, polite society. So he's, a, he's you know, desperate for friendship. Um, he'll think he's a cool kind of flirt and he's terrible at it. He's far too overt. So he's, I love satirizing him, yeah. using you know, him to satirize me and so many things about men that I find amusing and certain characters who've got more confidence than talent. But then having written, embarked on that, you you notice various things, other characters, uh, moments, people say things. So you are a seagull. You're stealing ideas. Um, But because I don't have much on the go, I'm not doing that all the time. I tend to do that with my, the book I'm writing, which is spot an idea on Twitter. Oh, yes. They've talked about neuroscience. That fits a little bit with my improv thing. Uh, they've talked about creativity. Well, I can, I can s- sort of use that as a prism through which to yeah. talk about how I apply it. Mm-hmm. So generally, and this I learned from Mike, Mike would never say, here's a blank piece of paper. Where do I start? He'd, he'd kind of had character or a story or a moment that was real and then completely switch it. But it, there was always something. And, and and whereas that's why I was struggling both at Cambridge trying to write comedy and that 14 year old boy doing my O level. I thought I've got to start somewhere and I didn't know where to start. And and the the best advice if you want to draw something is do a squiggle. Yeah. And then move it around upside down. Oh, then you see something that emerges. Yeah. And I, I may be misquoting Picasso, but generally he was asked, how did you make that carving of the lion? He said it was easy. I got some stone and took away all the bits that didn't look like lion. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> something about the art, the projects starts telling the creator yeah. what it needs. And Ian Forster said something like, you know, I don't know what a thing until I see what I've written. So there's a little bit of trusting the intuition of just jump in. And this is what I tell my son who's got to write an essay. And I can feel he's got similar to me. It's to just start, just jump in. Yeah. Go out, she said. I, where's the onion ring? And then... <laughs> That's what it's it's like, really don't overthink. If you overthink things, you're obviously going to make exactly. things a lot, a lot worse. Always, I can't think of anything. So I don't know where it's going to go. And almost, well, don't think about where it's going to go until you've got a start. And you may have an ending, but and there's a, a brilliant children's writer called Roy Apps, A-P, as in, you know, apps on your phone. And he said, writers don't, don't create things. He, he said, people imagine. He said, people get the wrong idea. Writers, they're going, well, oh, I must imagine something. They do three things, basically. They do imagine stuff, but they, yeah. den- they tend to uh, remember stuff from right. their own life and borrow hmm. from items of news or other people's experience. Hmm. And only then they might add a bit of imagination. So it's just much easier to start with something real, um, a real character, a real situation, a news item or something like that. Um, so that's why I was, when I do write corporate videos, I tend to ask them, tell me what you want me to say. Yeah. And then I might say, I'll put the words into the character of Elvorn Spencer, who says the opposite. <laughs> that was an, another tip from somebody who says, I don't know how to teach people how to sell. He said, well, that's fine. Just do a sketch where you show them how to be- how not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> the world's worst salesman. Then do that sketch. 
oh, right, that's easy. And they'll learn so much more than if you said, you know, you, to sell, you must be X, Y, Z. What do I know? I mean, as you say, Mike never did it. He never does anything by half. So even like talking about Axe Murderer earlier, you know, playing himself, him, the character and his dad. Yes. And, you know, it's just, you, you kind of wonder, you know, what goes on in his mind on a, da- <laughs> on a daily basis. <laughs> well, he's always thinking of things. Yeah, I'd say it's constantly, I'd say it's mine. Yeah, it is. He's got a bunch of stuff he's half thought, um, and then they come through. Like Roald Dahl had a notebook. Yeah. Mike has a mental notebook of characters, moments, and then let's take something from there and put it here. Um, So let's talk a little bit about music now. There's not very many people that don't like music in some shape or form. Have there been any sort of big music loves in your life, be it a band or an artist? Yeah. When I was about 15, I didn't want to be a comedian. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be Jimmy Percy of Sham 69 uh, because I noticed he didn't seem to sing that particularly well. I can't sing at all. I wanted to be in a band. That's was so yeah. much cooler than comedy. Yeah. I really wanted to be in a band, um, but I've made up for it by going to see lots of bands. So, my friend's brother was the bassist of Sham 69, Dave Trevanna. But we saw Sham quite a lot. Most of the gigs were stopped because there was fighting with the skinheads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I went to, uh, in my gap year, I went to live in Birmingham. So I could go to any gigs without my mum worrying about it. Because um, <laughs> previously, I'd, we friends got tickets to see Tom Robinson at the Rainbow. And I grew up in Surrey. This was all the way over. <laughs> so you said, you can't go. I said, well, can- can I go to Kingston, which is near where I live? The Coronation Hall, see Susan and the Banshees. No, you can't see them. Ah, oh, blimey. So eventually, after I'd done my Cambridge exam, I, I was able to go. So we, the, the weekend, uh, late November, early December, 1979, Friday, uh, Saturday night, Psychedelic Furs, uh, the National College of Food Technology. Sunday night, <laughs> I see them, the two-tone torn. Oh, torn. Man. Specials, the selector, Dexys Midnight Runners. Monday night, by which time I couldn't hear a thing. Um, the rainbow, the jam supported by the vapors. I was off then. I just loved gigs. And so when I lived in, I lived in Hansworth in my gap year for uh, four months. Uh, and I saw UB40 before they were famous, just after their first single, um, King had, uh, had been released, double A side. Uh, Digbeth Civic Hall, I saw Magazine Bauhaus, The Cure. Went to a reggae night with a group called Tradition that was fantastic with a toaster. Uh, I saw Dexys playing small gigs at Romeo's and Juliet's. Oh, and, wow. and I saw the members um, and uh, Top Rank. It's called something else now, completely different. I took a picture of it the other day. We saw uh, Sham 69. The, the gig was closed down by the police because of fighting. Uh, Martha and the Muffins, The Clash, supported by Mikey Dredd. And then I, I came back and saw the same tour of The Clash at Hammersmith Palais. I just love seeing gigs. And then for a long time, I didn't really, because uh, when I went to Cambridge, the Corn Exchange, great rock venue, oh, yeah. I've been looking forward to seeing things because I read the NME assiduously for yeah. three years, so 77 to 80, before I ran out, when I left them, I didn't have any money. Couldn't afford NME anymore. But uh, so the Corn Exchange, everybody did it. But then Ooh. for the three years when I was there, it was shut for refurbishment. <laughs> the, the only gig so I was able to see was a big marquee uh, on the Common, the special supported by, they had a hit called Mantovani. Oh, gosh, it was on two-tone. I'll remember at some point. Um, anyway, I think also the Body Snatchers supported them on that gig. Anyway, so then when I came to live in London, few, saw some gigs. Uh, 
famously, years later, the Stranglers, I saw the Clapham Grand, and I was doing a show called Six Pairs of Pants, yeah. which was a sketch show with Simon Pegg, Jessica Stevenson Hines now she is, Katie Carmichael and Simon Schatzberger. And we, uh, I said, Simon, let's go and see the Stranglers. So I, I bought two tickets and I gave him his and he lost it in between <laughs> and going to the front door. So he had to buy another one. And I said, keep saying, occasionally I see Simon. I said, have you ever found the Stranglers ticket? Um, then I sort of didn't see so many as time went on. And then 2009 magazine were playing. Now magazine, do you know who they are? Yes. Yes. Well, you do. But, um, the Buzzcocks. Mm. originally were led by Howard Devoto, but then he left to form Magazine, and they were my favourite band for a long time. There was kind of new wave, a bit artsy, a bit rocky, uh, sharp, sharp, by both sides. Um, and then Howard Devoto went to become a sort of film archivist. Mm. And in 2009, they were doing a reunion tour, and Barry Adamson was on bass. John McGock, I can't pronounce his surname, had died by that stage. He'd also been in The Creatures and Susie and the Banshees. And so they were on, and then... I got a phone call from my wife saying the baby's about to happen. Oh, no. Oh, no. I said, well, could, could you just wait a bit? <laughs> just hold just it. Hold it in. I've been it. waiting for decades to see magazine. And she said, no. So luckily a guy called Phil Whelans, who's an improviser, he came to my house. I said, here's the ticket. Uh, oh, well. Oh, my son was born. It was all right. And he's now taller than me. He was three weeks early, the Brotter. You've, you've held and it against him ever since. That year, I saw Magazine at the Royal Festival Hall, oh. and I bumped into um, Jeremy Vine, who was there uh, with Richard Sandbrook, who had been head of news, and I'd done some works for the BBC. And then I, then I was off, so I saw Public Image, and I, I, my whole joy of going to gigs was rekindled. Mm. But I tended... Uh, I don't like to see them in two big places. So I, yeah, I saw yeah. James Brown and Depeche Mode uh, at the, uh, what's it called? Big one in Wembley. Keep, keep changing its name. I saw the Rolling Stones at the oh, O2. Yeah. That was kind of scary because, um, I kept my, my friend who sees the Rolling Stones every year. Come along. I've got a spare ticket. And I can, how much is it? Oh, never mind. See you there at six o'clock. How much is it? And he said, here it is. 120 quid. Oh, Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. And we're oh, running in the gods and it was really steep. And <laughs> you, so if somebody fell over dancing and the kind of, we all kind of trod <laughs> all over the balcony, but it was kind of scary. <laughs> Hammersmith Apollo, I saw the Sex Pistols reunion there, uh, which was fun to see them after all the years. But, um, as John Lydon said, we you know we've, we perhaps had a little more to, more cocktails than we should have. Steve Jones and he, whereas Paul Cook on drums and Glenn Mutt are very healthy. I saw the B52s there and I saw, uh, Scissor Sisters at the Roundhouse. So I, I'm lucky to live within walking distance of some good places that are about the side, like the Forum had been the town. Yeah, country. I mean, even the Astoria, the Astoria was... The Astoria! The Astoria, the League there before it shut down. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, did I see the Lightning Seeds there as well? I saw Eels as well. Um, I thought, were they were Clifford and uh, different, <laughs> the two guys from Squeeze, they did a tour supported by the Lightning Seeds. Um, the men they couldn't hang. One of my favourite bands from the eighties. They were always played on late night, now whatever it's called on ITV. Men they couldn't hang, and I saw them play again within the last few years, supported by the members. But by that stage, Nicky Tesco was no longer in the members, but Rat Scabies from the Dam was on drums. So I like I like seeing small places. And when I did O One for London, which was a, a, a sort of timeout on the TV, a listings mag, I saw lots of bands and stuff like that, and people in their early incarnations. 
And there was one time there was going to be the comedy store players going to do a um, a Saturday Night Live type of show starting oh, at twelve oh one Saturday night, yeah. and the producers didn't have much money, so they borrowed the Songs of Praise cameras on a Monday night, <laughs> Albans, and they said we're going to have a star-studded lineup. We're going to have Mark Almond and uh, you know Soft Cell. Turns up he wasn't there. These two kind of young boys with guitars with glasses were on. All oh, right, so it's not Mark Almond. Two guys from Scotland called the Proclaimers, <laughs> who were brilliant, who were brilliant. So um, uh, the sad thing about me slightly is, is that I only tend to listen to, to records, <laughs> music that I used to listen to before. Yeah, yeah. So all my playlists are basically 70s, 80s. Yeah. Maybe a 90s thing. Maybe the Killers, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're allowed in, but I, it's a bit sad. And then I've embraced it. You know, that's fair enough. My children will listen to what they want to. I will make make them listen to the Clash in the car, but they used to. Uh, there was one, the Piranhas. Do you remember them? So this is my John Peel, Nicky Horn era. Yeah. So John Peel played the Piranhas, which is I don't want my body. I don't want my body. It looks like a reject from an Oxfam poster, and which I thought was a great line. And they, their album's got um, pleasure, pleasure, treasure, treasure, pleasure. So I, my children love that when they're in, you know under ten. Yeah. So. I feel a little bit bad that I only go and see bands that uh, I knew before yeah. and I listen to music from before. And it's funny going to these, see these gigs. So I saw Eddie and the Hot Rods at 229 and, uh, you know, there was a queue at the disabled toilet because, and Barry Masters at one point was looking a bit uneasy and now he's since passed away. But there was a moment when the rest of the band going, are you all right? So mostly I, I go to gigs with old fat men like me. <laughs> Occasionally, there's some women like the selector I saw at 229 as well, supported by the Stone Foundation, who are great, who are a bit younger than the groups I'm talking about. Uh, and I saw the beat as well at the Roundhouse. Wow. No, actually, I saw the beat, Dave Wakeling's beat at ULU, University of London. Uh, and of course, that's the American based. So there was another black guy doing what Ranking Roger used to do. But I saw Ranking Roger with the beat, the English beat, well, the beat as they're called. In America, they're called the English Beat, um, supported by the selector. That was great, but now Branking Roger has. has yeah. Well. So, yeah. you know, and then Terry Hall, you know, yeah, Terry That's... Hall. And I wrote about this on my Substack. Terry Hall, the specials were iconic because they oh. said, first of all, this is music for you. Yeah. I wasn't into Yes and Genesis. You know, the cool boys were. I, I, I arrived too late for that. But then when punk came, it was, this is speaking to me. And then Scar and Two-Tone spoke very clearly. And in hindsight, there weren't any bands that had black people, white people together. Yeah. So I thought, this is the end of racism and how naive I was. <laughs> because, you know, the audience and the, there was no, we were colorblind. We didn't care. Yeah, yeah. We were playing fantastic music that may have some had its beginnings in the, in, in the Caribbean or Africa or wherever, but it, it became all of our music. Um, and so, on the other hand, when you read about the specials now, a lot of the gigs, they were attacked by skinheads. Yeah. And that's a shame. But, of course, the real skinheads embraced the music. Anyway, so it was, I was really sad when Terry Hall died yeah. because he was part of who I thought I wanted to be mm. in a society where racism was just not understood. You know, it literally wasn't there. Sadly, it still is here. Yeah. So uh, that's when music, I, I felt you know, had something to say. And that's what Terry Hall would say is he wanted a conversation. The song was talking to people. Mm. 
giving vent to his feelings. And he wrote some beautiful lyrics as well, some yeah. love songs as well. So there we are. I love music. Uh, can't play at all. I'm in awe of those who can. I would love to have been a band, but um, you needed to have some sort of musical ability. Well, there's still time, Neil. Do you know what I mean? That could be your, on your bucket list, being a, being a band, you know, one day. Well, um, on school camp, I used to have a character called Vic Pavement, uh, <laughs> who was in a punk band. And then <laughs> a couple of years later, the Vic Pavement Hockey Eleven played at a, <laughs> a hockey festival because all the people at my school were very good at hockey because we only yeah. played yeah. rugby or football. And so they played for England, Wales, Scotland, Great Britain. And so they went to this hockey festival and called it Vic Pavement's Eleven because the guy thought it was really funny. And I was this kind of guru character. Yeah, yeah. Vic Pavement. And I, I found a hat with, uh, with a picture of me in a trilby, <laughs> kind of um, looking a sort of suburban, two-tone kind of person. Anyway, so yes, I'd love to be in a band, but... Um, one day. One day. One day. Well, thanks so, so much for giving me your time today, Neil. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You're a lovely host. And I... I feel a certain pride that we have made you no longer an improv virgin. No, I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm quite proud of myself after that. 